up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the call, we have Tommy DeLago. Tommy, what's going on? Hey, how you doing, man? Just sitting here in my office, getting ready to go down to uh, Brownsburg tomorrow, work on the car. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a, it's about that time for you uh, NHRA guys to uh, pull them belts tight and start doing some work, right? Uh, getting there pretty soon. I mean, the guys, <clears throat> Mike Green and the guys uh, have been down there working tirelessly on putting together a new chassis and cleaning up the old one and um, tidying up some projects that we were doing. Uh, I was there last couple weeks, three days a week, and then come up here and work three days a week at the at my plant, my beef jerky plant and stores, and just trying to balance both. Um, so even though business hasn't been really that busy, I've been busy. Yeah, that, that, that's how that usually works, right, is you're not super busy, but everything else is? Uh, yes, that's how, I mean, trying to keep, trying to balance all this, you know, it can definitely be done. It just takes a little bit of organization, and I'm, I'm still uh, working on that. We're getting better with it, you know, trying to balance how much time with the business. You know, I've got I've hired a manager uh, to help with day to day. And that's starting to come together. Still some training needed, but starting to come together, learn the business. Also trying to time it with uh, my wife's travel schedule. Also, she's got to do 17 different uh events herself this year not just in drag racing but uh in nascar and f1 so yeah there's there there's gonna be a whole lot of travel going on and whatnot right yeah so we're just trying to get you know trying to get organized you know, before you know the previous before i took three years off to uh try to build this business the uh she was working for a college and, 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 uh, you know, I was still racing and, but that's all I did. Yeah. I was busy doing that full time, but there wasn't really a lot to balance. It was like, okay, we do this on Monday. We do this on Wednesday. Okay. We fly on Thursday, fly home on Monday. Now it's about balancing. Okay. Go to, go to Brownsburg. All right, what days to work at the company? Okay, what what days is Rachel traveling the same days as me so that I can get Abraham to doggy daycare? And just kind of trying to just trying to get everything organized so that it's you know try to keep it as low drama, low stress as possible. And I think that's that's interesting to me because a lot of people don't. I guess maybe they have the wrong misconception that a lot of a lot of guys, like all they do is they're like uh, in the NHRA and the the pro ranks. They're like a they're like action figures that they only come out of the box on race weekends and that's it. But there's a whole lot more to everything that goes on. Yeah, I remember back when I first started as a crew guy. I think it was like four years in or three years in. I was at Coletta's, and yeah, you'd be amazed at how many people ask, "What do you do during the week?" And you know, the sport of drag racing has especially uh, nitro racing has gotten to be a full-time job for, you know, up to seven crew guys and, and uh, a couple crew chiefs, uh, you know, obviously, and you get your PR got people and, and uh, might have some actual people looking for sponsorships and this and that, and you got a driver, but there's so much maintenance that goes on 
that you need all those guys to work during the week to get everything prepared. The only way to service a car, tear it all the way down and put it all the way back together in, in, in basically 35, 40 minutes is you have to make sure that everything is actually already measured, checked good, and ready to go and documented so that you're just basically at that point swapping parts. You don't have time to measure it all and do everything. So that's what you spend all week. It's all about preparation. It's a lot like, I mean, I, mean, I can't sit here and say it's a lot like football. I've never been a professional football player. But from what I gather and, and uh, talking to some people that I do know in football, they always say it's all about preparation. And, and the race car is no different, you know, especially at the professional level. No matter what level, it takes preparation. But the professional level, if you want to compete, it's all about preparation and focus. I mean, it's kind of like, again, professional football. They all are good athletes. They're all fast. What separates most most great players from good players is mental makeup and preparation. So that's basically the same thing here. Everybody's got pretty close to the same parts. Um, maybe somebody can come up with a better way to, to uh, approach something. But basically, it's what really makes you gives you a chance to be successful is preparation. Oh, that, that totally makes sense because I can only imagine that, well, let's back that up. When you're at the track and you see everything happening in the pits, that's what I think, again, that, like you just mentioned, people don't understand the measuring everything that happens because that way you know when you go to bin A, aisle B in the truck and grab a part, you know it's going to fit and nothing needs to be done, and that stuff just doesn't magically happen. No, it doesn't, and and – Believe it or not, you know, we've gotten so stringent on our measurements that even when you get parts that are new, we never assume that they're correct. So even oh, new no. parts that you order, we still run them through the same process as parts that we've previously run just to make sure that there's no margin of, or, that, you know, there's no errors that can actually happen. Because there's just no, you know, especially in drag racing, um, not t saying one's tougher than the other, but, you know, NASCAR racing you might go a lap down and you might get your lap back either, you know, either with a lucky dog or you actually just get your lap back by racing it back and you have still have a shot to win in drag racing. Usually you make a mistake and you have to wait till the next race. You're done. It's such a perfectionist sport that you don't, you, you don't often get to make a mistake and keep racing. No. And I think that's what, you know, for me, it, it, that's what the, the two-sided coin that is nitro racing is that it's extremely precise on one side what you have to do. And then the other side, it's just blunt force trauma that happens. And you can't have that coin without having both sides, you know, polished up and right. Well, that's so true. So true. You know, that's, uh, that's why I always tip my hat to – you know, all the crew guys that work on every team, all the crew chiefs, you know, I tell people um, whenever asked or wherever I get a situation is you could take a, a, a fan to try to teach fans. You know, they just see what they see either at the races or at TV, on TV and they say, well, man, this crew chief's way better than this one. Well, maybe that guy has way more wins, but it doesn't mean he's way better. Like the, mar the, the, the margin of from your best crew chief to your what you supposedly think is your worst crew chief is there's not much difference there they're they're both brilliant and like i said before a lot of it's preparation a lot and then then you get your team you know you could have 
one of the most talented quarterbacks and coaches in the NFL, but if you don't have a good offensive line and defensive line, you're not going anywhere. Nope. And that's the same thing with these fuel cars. You can have an awesome driver, an awesome crew chief, an awesome owner, but if you don't have guys who are dedicated and really there to win and, and really have the passion for the sport and the passion to succeed at all costs, then that could be the difference maker because you're only as good as your foundation. And those, those guys, to me, they don't get talked about enough. And I think that they're, believe it or not, I think that they have more to do with the car running well and being consistent than even a crew chief. Oh, totally. And, you know, your Nitro crew, you, you know, you, you didn't magically just become a crew chief. You didn't jump in there. You know, you started spinning wrenches for Tommy Johnson Jr. back in the day. And, you know, when you started doing that, it, it, your crew, like you said, you know, the crew life isn't an easy life at all. It takes dedication. You have to want to be able to, to do it. What was it the thing that made you realize when you were a crew guy, like, I can make a career out of this. This is what I want to do. Well, you know, I don't really know. Well, I do know that to begin to get before we get there. I'd always loved racing. My family came from motorcycle racing, flat track. And, but I was kind of a black sheep. Cause I'm like, I, I mean, I can ride a motorcycle, but I can't really ride one. Like the rest of my family, distinct like the difference. Rest of my family were really, really, really good on flat track bikes, motorcycle, mo- uh, motocross, trails trials riding you, you name it and i was and i just didn't have i just didn't have that knack but i always had a uh even at that young age i always liked cars and four, you know things with four wheels and i went racing bracket racing myself and for a few years and just got to the point where i spent all my money racing I didn't know how to get any help, sponsorship, or money-wise from people. Didn't come from a family with money. And, uh, I mean, we weren't poor by any means, but we didn't have enough money to really, like, even bracket race to really have a nice operation. So I just got to a point where I got old enough and decided, you know, being a driver is a dream. I need to make that into a dream, not a goal, because I can't control all of that being successful in some form of working on race cars, I can actually be in control of to a point. It's, you know, hard work and dedication. And I still get that sense of competitiveness and I'm still, uh, you know, have an opportunity to leave a legacy. And uh, that's how I thought many, many years ago when I was a young kid. And I got the opportunity to go to work for Tommy Johnson Sr. and Jr. when they had the Mopar Dragster and I took it and never looked back you know started from the bottom working building motors working on uh heads and grinding clutch discs whatever they needed me to do and um it wasn't until i got to coletta's that i really truly bought totally into it you know that's what i told myself but i really was still kind of on the fence as far as wanting to be a driver or wanting to work on the cars after the first year at coletta's i was we had a Coletta Christmas party and Ace grabbed me and said, so what do you want to do? I said, Ace, I really would like to be a driver. I said, I'd love to learn everything on the car. So I think it'd make me a better driver to understand how everything operates. But I, you know, I think I have talent as a driver. And he said, what you should do 
is just concentrate on getting learning everything you can learn and try to work yourself up your way to be a crew chief. And whatever reason, um, you know, totally respected Ace right away. Ace just has, uh, he has a knack for when he talks, you listen. And for whatever reason, I really bought into it and it really sunk in. And he took me under his wing and I, I have to credit you know, I can't credit him with 100% of everything I learned, but I have to credit him with the majority. I would, I would say he's at least, you know, 70% of what I've learned and 70% of the reason why I was able to become a crew chief and and uh, be involved with a with an awesome crew of guys at, at Schumacher's and win a championship and set several national records. So, realistically, yes, Ed the Ace McCullough, he had a major hand in in. Uh, teaching me and, and uh, getting to me where I'm at. You know, let's talk about that for a second. Cause you, you got to work with ACE who I find like, I want to get him on the show because he seems fascinating. Like he's just that old school, cool guy that probably has some stories that would just blow my mind. But what was the experience learning from him? Because you, you hear, you talk to some guys and he definitely had a little bit of an edge to him. He, he was a character. He was a character, but when you work for him, it was all about business. All being, you know, I mean, not saying that after work you couldn't go out and have a good time. He would do that with us. But during 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 the race, during work hours, it was business. We were there to win as much as possible. Uh, put in the time, and you know, he basically would treat you like a professional and treat you like a man. And in that turn is. He expects if you make a mistake that you own up to it and tell him right away. Otherwise, it makes it harder for him to tune. And, you know, just be a man. If you get yelled at, he would never yell at you or get after you unless you deserved it and you did something wrong. And if you did something wrong, well, then you just need to be a man and take it. Because realistically, he's not yelling at you because he's being a dick. He's yelling at you because, one, you need a little tune-up to realize – what areas you need to get better in and two he's trying to make you better at what you do so rather than get offended by everything it's just ears open eyes open learn be a sponge and you know have a little bit of thick skin here and there and i think that really gives you a leg up on having success in your future because there's a lot of smart people that you can learn from, and they're not always going to be sugarcoat everything. I mean, Connie Coletta doesn't sugarcoat nothing, but he's a genuinely awesome dude. He's generally always there, and if anybody ever needs help, like he's got a big heart. But he doesn't. St- he can't stand for any BS. So you just gotta in the in a professional environment, you gotta kind of step up. You gotta get thick skin, and you gotta remember that when you're on the road. And you're working on these professional cars. It's not a job. It's basically a lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> – I think that there is no uh, better way to really describe working on a nitro cars because you, you live a, a gypsy-style life, and you have to have a different kind of mindset to really do it. Yeah, you give up a lot of family stuff. Um, but, you know, if you structure it right, you can make up for some of it. Um I can definitely tell you that uh, when we won the championship in 2011, I'm sitting in, and we won the race for Mono. I'm sitting in the winner's circle with all all my guys and and Hagen and 
my family had showed up. My little net, my little, my nephews back then were, I think, five years old, four years old. And, um, started looking around and I'm like, man, did I, was it, it, it took me a while to actually real, you know, come to terms with after I, we accomplished that was, was it worth everything that I gave up? And it took me a couple of years, a few years actually to realize that it was. And realistically, these last three years off has even taken it to another level of pretty much relaxing the brain and realizing why you started racing in the first place. You know, you do it long enough and, it, and you start to lose sight that you did it because you loved it. You started doing it because you loved it. You start, it's part of who you are. And as you get older and you have kids and you have bills and you know, you have a house and mortgage and you learn real fast that all those stresses of that start to kind of can get in the way of your, your mind if you don't keep it clear and you start doing it because you, you think you have to, because you have all these responsibilities and you know, everybody's different for me. It, I needed that couple years, three years off to kind of, get back to ground zero and get back to, you know, the natural drag racer that I was and why I loved it and the passion that I had for it 25 years, 27 years ago. Right on. Now you mentioned Connie Clay and you got to work for Don Schumacher as well. Kind of what was it like working for those two Titans of the nitro world? Because it seems like just from, you know, the outside looking in that Don seems a lot more, cool calm and laid back and like you said connie's a little bit of a firecracker at times so what was it like working for those guys i mean there's ways that they're identical you know they're both successful businessmen they both they both expect uh top quality production from their crew chiefs and their crews and their cars um but then you got little differences you know like uh Connie's pretty much lays the law down and that's it. And Don can kind of be like that, but he'll always leave a little bit open there for like, Hey, if you really believe that's how, that that's how all this needs to be, he'll actually give you enough rope to either succeed or hang yourself. You know, like, Hey, we need to, Don may say, I don't know why you're doing this. And you say, well, this is why we're doing it. And you list off the five reasons of what it's going to accomplish by doing it. You know, I've done that several times with Don with several projects that we were working on at the races. And I'm like, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. And several times he's like, all right, I'm in. If you're in, let's let's go ahead and do it. And but you better be right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can I can imagine. So, I mean, there is no perfect. I mean, it's like there's no perfect family member. There's no perfect owner. You know, they, we don't know everything that's going on. You know, like both him and Connie, you don't know how many, how much stress they're already under in their business. And then they got to deal with us punks. And you also don't hold on one second. Hey, close that door, please. Okay. Hold on one sec. No, yeah, we're good. 
Hey, Steve. There's somebody outside for you. Oh, my Stay. Sorry about that. Well, we, I always joke with people, you know, that on the Dragzine podcast, we're definitely far from uh, the clean cut professional operation. We just roll with life because that's how it is. Well, I appreciate it. I'm trying to, you know, like I said, trying to balance business with everything else. No, no, I totally get it, man. Um, so where was I? Oh, so, yeah, I mean, none of them are perfect. You know, I appreciate all them for everything that they opportunities they gave me. Um, they've all had their separate different successes. Um, I think they're all great role models in their own ways for different things. You know, I'm not saying that they're the, you know, best person in the world. I'm just think I'm just saying that they've all had success in certain forms in their life. And there's gotta be something you can take from that no matter who it is. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I was fell down a YouTube rabbit hole, and I remember the show uh, uh, Winners that I forget the dude, the dude that used to host. You know, it was all about it was on Nashville Network, and they had Connie on there, and it was so crazy to see him wrenching on the car, Scott there, and then a wild Doug Herbert, you know, a, a Doug Coletta appears, and it just it, it spoke like seeing them work that way and what they do. It really kind of. Uh, it's almost funny to see that now because you could see why he became as successful as what he is. Passion and hard work, man. They, they, uh, I mean, put together with being pretty brilliant. Those, those are the three good formulas to be successful, right there. It's funny too. You mentioned that you know the, the kind of in a, a roundabout way that you know that there, there's certain expectations and stresses that come from the owners, but at the same time. I've heard this from a couple crew chiefs is you could do everything that is right. You know, your data, everything's lined up. The tune up should be there. And then all of a sudden the blower decides it wants to launch itself in the low orbit. You're like, that didn't go as planned. That's just something you got to learn to kind of deal with when you're tuning on one of these things, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's a tough way to look at it. I mean, yeah, it's hard to, you're not going to tune it when there's something that just breaks and you don't know it's going to break. But just to say that it's not our fault. I don't know about that because if we were to all say, well, that ain't our fault. Just keep doing the same thing, which is the definition of insanity. Yeah. Then this sport wouldn't have progressed to where it has and, and the maintenance programs and, and how close the racing's gotten. And, you know, it's cost more money, but we've cut down on parts breakage. Yeah. I'm not saying the car doesn't get mistuned or whatever. Or somebody makes a mistake as far as a crew guy. But you try to train your guys as good as you can. You try to, you're always evolving your maintenance program. And you're always evolving like, oh, this part is not lasting as long. Let's see what we can do. Can we re-engineer it? Can we, are there some new materials that we can make it out of to make that part better? And then you start, you know, everything has a run count. You know, we only put this many runs on rods, no matter what. We only put this many runs on springs, no matter, even if they measure right. You know, the, you measure everything, and if it don't measure right, it gets cycled out and recycled or sold to uh, somebody that's got a nostalgia car or something that doesn't beat the parts up as hard. Yeah. Um, so... I still think that a lot of times, even though you think it's not really 
your fault that it could be because you know maybe you need to have a little different maintenance outlook like okay maybe we're we need to redesign that part a little bit or we've been put 25 runs on there and realistically we probably don't need to do maybe we should only put 20 you know and that's how the sport has kind of evolved is everybody is really up their preventative maintenance program you know that's what a lot of the work during the week also is uh magnifluxing and measuring and and uh and then just paying attention to your parts and, and paying attention to when, when stuff looks like it's getting ready to break or it does break. And then you evolve your run count on everything, you know, ring and pinion, uh, rocker shafts, rocker arms, uh, reversers, pressure plates, uh, flywheels, like just all the moving parts, tires. We, we have run counts for them, and that's been built off of parts breakage. So you're like that, and that's you kind of take ownership of it, and you kind of take responsibility, and that's how you get better. And it's it's interesting when you're kind of t- talking about that. It got me to think, and you know, I remember growing up, and you know, you used to see it seemed like a catastrophic failure of some kind every round out of somebody, but you don't see that nearly like you used to. And I'm assuming that's tied to the the maintenance and the upkeep of these cars now. I think uh, I think uh, everything together it's tied with people getting learning the craft of a fuel car more and more uh, more knowledge out there um, manufacturers that produce parts with a lot of uh, input from crew chiefs um, and even crew guys just people who have a good eye for what they're seeing have been able to improve their parts um, evolution of, of uh, materials that are used has helped to lessen some of the uh catastrophic failures you know oh we don't don't run that crank gear more than this many runs because they've been known to they can break and when a crank gear breaks it's a catastrophic failure because all the valves run into the pistons and it it is it is horrible that's one of the biggest explosions you can have (laughs) so over time the gears have gotten better and then all the teams have learned like you know we in the old days when they didn't run as hard we used to put a crank gear on a crank run it when the crank was cycled out we pulled the gear off and put it on another crank well now on the you know cars that have a somewhat decent budget we all know like the crank gear just needs to be run as long as the crank does and that's it don't be trying to reuse those because it's too, it's too much of an important part it drives everything yeah so just again it's just uh only two ways to learn one is from corrective criticism and one is from making your own mistakes and obviously drag racing and fuel racing has learned a lot from smart people but also learned a tremendous amount from making mistakes and learning from them. Yeah. It, it, the other thing I, that you've mentioned there I find very interesting, a lot of people might not realize too, is the fact that you're working with the manufacturers because I've been in the pits before and I've seen reps, you know, we'll say from like Darton in there, like talking to not just the crew chief, but whoever's in charge of, you know, a certain area of the maintenance on the engine or the bottom end guy or something like that to try to find ways to, you know, refine the mousetrap. Yes, that uh, there's several 
crew guys that are veteran crew guys that really know their way around the car and maybe could easily be a car chief or assistant crew chief or whatever, but just haven't had the opportunity. Um, that are still very smart people and have, and, and they've got their hands and fingers on their parts several times a day. So who better to tell you and know what the trend is on a certain part that you're buying from a certain manufacturer? Cause it's, you know, it's, again, it's about seeing a trend and it's about trying to adapt to what it's showing you before it bites you. Yeah. If there's one thing drag racers are good at, especially nature racers, is finding the uh, the edge of, you know, a cycle time on a part or what it's capable of, and then going about two steps beyond it. Well, yeah, uh, you know, it's a it, again, you're trying to win at all costs. Yeah, but at the same time. Uh, and I, th- I don't know, you know, I'm getting older now where I used to be one of the youngest guys out there. Now I'm, you know, well, not the oldest, but I'm getting close. <laughs> and uh, I look at things, I've never really liked hurting parts, but I look at it even more like you win more rounds and run better if it's got parts left in it. Yeah, exactly. Trying to run it, trying to run it on the ragged edge, you may get one or two runs where you kick anybody's butt. But can you string, you know, eight of those together, ten of those together when you run it that hard? And I don't – it's really hard to do. So you kind of almost need to run it like you – know, that's what I started doing like when we won the championship. If we knew that we could run – the track would handle a four flat, we would – unless we need it against a certain competitor, we would – most of the day, I'd try to run a thing to where it was in the 405 to 403 range. I'd run it three or five hundreds behind what I think our ragged edge run would be. One, to alleviate a little less chance of smoking the tires. And two, to pick your battles. Pick your chance. You know, don't run it on the ragged edge every run. You're opening yourself up to having even more explosions and, and or hurting somebody. Um run it like that until you need it you know you get to the final and the track starts cooling down that's when you're going to use utilize it anyway well, so you, it, go ahead i was gonna say well yeah it makes your day just eat it, it makes your race day strategy easier when you can when you're not having to worry about like fixing a catastrophic issue right exactly you could cost the you could cost the owner or you cost the team a bunch of money, cost the crew guys a bunch of work, and you still ain't winning that race. Yeah, it you so know it's like it's like uh, it's like salt on the wound right there. You already lost. <laughs> you hate to lose and blow everything up. Yeah, it, it's you know I always say it, it. You know it. No matter if I lose in the first round or what, as long as I'm putting the car back in the trailer, it's not knocking, smoking, banging. Doesn't have to go to the chassis shop and doesn't have to go to the body shop. It was a good race weekend. Yeah, I don't know. Good, good is a uh, kind of a general answer. I, I, I would say that that's better than having everything blowed up. Yeah. But you know, obviously, um, in our sport, you know, I try not to stress out about it, but realistically, it, the only way. You consider the weekend a success as if you win. 
Oh, not totally. Yeah. If you don't, if you lose first round, and you still think it's a good weekend. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't agree with that. When unless you're like a part-time racer and, you know, your goals are different, which makes sense. If you have a lower budget and you're a part-time racer, and you're just starting out, and you set your goals, and your first goal was, hey, let's qualify. Your next goal was, hey, let's go home with everything in one piece. Then yeah, for for them. You know, it's all relative. That's a great weekend for working for Schumacher or Connie or, or uh, John Force or, you know, uh, Torrance or whatever, and you don't win the race. Uh, it's not a good weekend. You know, it's, uh, you know, especially like even with Schumacher, if he gives you, lets you run any part you want to run, you hire and fire anybody you want to. Um, you run the car the way you want to. Only thing of success is winning. You don't win, it wasn't a successful weekend. So, just it's it's like uh, it's all relative to what your what your viewpoint is. And, and I think that right there is a defining statement on you know when you say you know prof- people call you know the 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 nitro cars the professional classes, but true professional organizations, not you know some of the privateers or some of their friends are going out and having a good time. There is a very sharp line between what they're doing and what you're trying to do at like a Schumacher or Coletta, right? Yeah, it's like anything in life, right? They have you first start doing it and you say, you know, one another secret to success is having goals. So you you've got your lower goals, you got them, you may consider that successful. But the guy next to you who's got a different bag of goals, his view his viewpoint of success is going to be different than yours, and neither one of you are wrong. It's you know what I mean? Like it's. Um, both guys can be totally right. Both guys can be totally happy. They just they just have a, a different viewpoint of what success is or what level they need to attain to consider it successful. You know, like in any sport, perfection is unattainable. But we all still do pursue perfection. And that's what keeps you going even after you've had success or even after you've won races or even after you've set national records is that you know that's what drives you is that it can still be better. It can still be better. And that drive for attaining what you know pretty much is unattainable, that's what keeps you going. You want to see how close you can get to perfection knowing that you're not going to get perfection. And, and working off that, you know, you allude to earlier, you know, you, you tune Hagen to a championship and, and kind of looking back on that now, you know, what was it like chasing a title, you know, for you, you know, as the crew chief, as you're going through the whole season, you know, what, what, what was that whole process like? That was a pinnacle of my racing career. I mean, 2009, 10 and 11, you know, nine is when it just started in 2009, we started with Hagen. And we struggled, you know, he was learning how to drive. I was really learning how to be a real crew chief. Uh, my assistant or co-crew chief, Glenn Huzzer, was also learning. And we had pretty fresh crew guys that we were teaching. By the end of, by the middle of 2009, Don says, You're, these funny cars are slow. And I said, well, I have some ideas. You know, I'm pretty open, outside the box thinker, free thinker. And he was like, well... How long will it take you? I said, 
I could take us a couple months to get it all worked out and being raceable, but I know that we could be better. So he jumped on board and we did it. And he started to get a little bit like worried, like, is this ever going to come true? Are you going to ever get the car to run better? And then finally, in 2009, we went to the final against Robert Height and ran some really good numbers in Charlotte. Then we went to Vegas for number one qualifier and top speed of the meet at the end of the year. Um, and then that allowed us in 2010 to keep testing new stuff and trying to race and almost won the championship. But we lost it on the last day. And I think that we would have never won a championship if we wouldn't have lost it that in 2010 the way we did. It, you really have to believe it or not. I think you learn more from losing than you do from winning. I've heard that from a few people that you, you to become a champion, sometimes you have to lose a championship to learn what it takes to, to go over that hump. And we definitely did. You know, we learned from it. Hagen learned a whole different frame of mind. I learned a whole new frame of mind and we approached it, you know, not totally different, but a little bit different in 2011 than we did in 2010 and made sure to keep all our guys loose. We all stayed loose. We already knew what it, you know, my outlook was when we got down on the countdown is, Hey, we know what to do. Let's just do the best we can and let's enjoy this. We we're, Instead of being stressed out trying to win a championship, how about we just enjoy that we actually have this chance to win a championship? Like, let's cherish and enjoy that we're in this position. I've had too many years where it wasn't even a position to do that. So we just looked at it from a totally different way. Instead of being zoned in at the on the end, we appreciated every run, every race, and just enjoyed hanging out with each other. And that, you know, call it luck or whatever, that turned into a championship in 2011. And I think that that's, again, kind of – it's interesting to hear different crew chiefs and how they go through the process and what they do. And it, it's that learning process and then staying loose because it, it's like, you know, you, you see a lot of boxers, some of the best boxers or MMA fighters, you see them go out there. They just, they look loose. They don't seem like they're uptight because they have confidence and they have that mindset that they're going to be able to get the job done. That's one of the big secrets. It's hard to do till you can learn it, but it's, you know, your brain works better if, if you're not distracted by being stressed out or you're not letting yourself get stressed out or you're not, let, you're not thinking about the pressure, you're not thinking about what happens if we lose. You start getting pressure like that on yourself and you start making, you start getting indecision, indecision and then you start making bad decisions based off of, you know, I went through this myself in 2012 after we won the championship 2011, started racing you know, started to get a little bit of pressure from Don and started racing uh, on Sunday. Like, okay, what do we have to do here to not lose this round? And that did not work for us. Some people it would work for. For me, it did not work. I have to go up there and be like, we smoke the tires, we smoke the tires. At least we know we were trying. So what do we have to do? to win this round and just going up over the more positive outlook on figuring out how to win versus figuring out how not to lose. Once you get into figuring out how not to lose, it's, it's a bad rabbit hole to get into hard to get out of. Yeah. Your, your, your mind isn't where it needs to be and you're not making the, the most, uh, I guess, optimized decisions. Definitely not, you know, and all for the wrong reasons, at least how I see it and how I saw it and how I lived it. That's, 
what I've come to conclusion on, and I will never race like that again. And you know, sw- switching gears a little bit, kind of off of that too. You know, you're you're coming into to be a part of the Brain Trust. You know, at Davis Motorsports now with Justin Ashley, and, and much more of a formal role. You know, you started working with them last year. How did how did this whole deal come out? Because you know, you've been up there making delicious beef jerky, and all of a sudden you're back uh, helping with nitro cars. Well, Mike Green and I have known each other for years. Um, we worked a little bit together before I got let go at Snakes, and then he got let go back in like 2002 or three. Then he called me, and we both teamed up on the the last half of the uh, season of the Yankees dragster with Jerry and Daryl Gwynn. And we had a blast. And we pretty much had that car run pretty good by the end, by the last few races of the year. And then they didn't have a sponsor for the next year. So believe it or not, we ended up going back to snakes on the blue funny car with TJ. And then he went to, you know, then Ace went over to Schumacher's. Then Green went to Schumacher's. And then in 2008, I went to Schumacher's. And so we were all kind of working together just on different cars. So we got we got to all really, you know, put our brains together. And Green and I have always, you know, just kind of in passing or having a drink together or whatever, like, man, we've always cherished that time we ran a car together when we were working at Gwyn's and said, man, it would be nice someday to actually be able to do that and try to pursue a championship together. And... You know, I, I still think that our wives may have had something to do with pushing this on, pushing us both in a direction. But um, Mike called me. Oh, what was it? Probably October, beginning of October. I was down with uh, Andy Setwinski and Glenn Huzzer. We were uh, putting a new chassis together for Bob Gilbertson. And Mike calls and said, and runs the spiel by me of like, hey, man, they asked me what I wanted for the next year. And I told them that I wanted to hire you to give us, you know, extra set of eyes out there. Um, give, you know, give me a right hand man and then have somebody who's an open thinker that could research and develop some projects for us. And that really excited me, especially uh, being able to work in a role of being allowed to be a free thinker. You know, Mike makes final call on the car, but we'll discuss, you know, obviously everything that we, all the decisions on it, but Mike, you know, Mike's the guy. Mike, I, I basically, Dustin Davis is my owner, but I work for Mike Green. You know, he's the one that wanted me there. Uh, he's the one I'll be loyal to, and we're just going to do this together. So whatever, you know, I'm just another tool for, for, for Mike Green as, as, as a crew chief. I'm his tool. You set he sets me a direction, I go figure it out. Um, that's just fun to me, you know. Being able to research and development stuff, develop stuff, being able to uh, have time to not have to be deal with all the the top crew chief duties, but now I have time to work with the guys and teach people more about what they're doing. Uh, Maybe someday I would want to be the top crew chief again, but right now this is perfect. This is, I get to give back to the sport by teaching young men more information about the sport they have passion for. 
um, I get an opportunity to help Dustin Davis and uh, Justin Ashley attain their goals with my, uh, along with Mike Green. So, I mean, it, realistically, it was just a perfect scenario, and there was no way I could pass it up. To, the chemistry was way too good with everybody, and uh, I didn't want to go down the road a few years from now and be like, kick myself for not doing it. So you kind of answered my question, you know, there, I was going to follow up with, you know, what's it like being on a team where you kind of have that open role? And I guess we've answered that, but you know, what can you tell us what, you know, when you, when you say develop things and research stuff, that, that's something that's always fascinated me. You know, what, what do nitro guys do to research and develop things? You know, what, what are the projects you get to play that you can tell us it doesn't, you know, give away any competitive edge or anything, but just kind of, you know, Pull the curtain back a little bit and let our listeners know what uh, what kind of madness you get to play with. Well, first of all, there's not a lot you can do anymore because the rules are pretty tight. But that being said, your imagination can still find better ways to skin the cat. And just because it's a better way for you doesn't mean it's a better way for another team. But it has to go along. You know, it's like back in the old hot rodding days. You could read about this magic part and hot rod magazine and think you're going to bolt it on your car and get all this horsepower no you need to put it all together as a combination and they need to go together with each other to make make it all work in harmony so we have to look at how mike's approach is and how their car responds and look at tendencies and then once you get some tendencies then you're like okay i think we can do this and make that a little bigger in this area like let's say in the clutch like i Clutch is pretty good, but I think we can gain a little consistency and maybe a little more performance if we change, you know, to a different clutch lever or less clutch levers or more clutch levers. Um, so you, you try to R&D some different levers or some different radiuses. And then, you know, you can work with the manufacturers and come up with a little bit, you know, we've done over the years, we've worked with Bonifani Friction and had various different styles of, the steel floaters that go between the actual clutch discs and changing little things with that, you know, whether it's heat sink or the way that it shears material off the clutch disc to shear, to shed heat. There's so many different things and you just got to make, find the stuff that fits the combination and the approach that whoever's making the final decisions, you just got to try to find those little holes and put everything together. So yeah, we've, you know, and you're constantly working on you know, making a valve stronger so it not only can live longer, but less chance of failing and blowing the motor up. You know, you're you're constantly looking like, okay, what can we do in the blower area to make the blower live longer between services to hold its clearances better? They're just, it's not always just performance. Sometimes it's, it's about cons- building parts that will be more consistent from run to run. Yeah, that's... See that to me that makes sense and that's fascinating here because I know I, I did a story on that uh, Rob Wenland's YouTube channel when he had that uh, blower dyno that him and Austin Coyle kind of messed with and to me that stuff is just fascinating because of like working on a radial tire car and playing with that stuff is is interesting. You're playing with horsepower, but to me what you guys do with R and D on nitro cars is like on such a crazy different level because you know it's not 2,000 horsepower, it's 10, 11, 12,000 horsepower. And it's just, it's a completely different set of metrics that you guys have to like operate under. 
Well, yeah, and and you talk about R and D. You got guys like Alan Johnson, Brad Anderson, Matt Beeneman of MBE. That if you look at the cylinder heads that these cars run today versus what they ran when I first started, it's not even it's head and shoulders better now than it was back then. Oh yeah, strength of them, longevity, but also uh, in turn performance came along with that. And those guys have also helped all of us move forward. And when something like that happens, it gives us all ideas on, oh, that worked like that. Well, maybe if that works, then maybe let's try this next because that'll work. Like we've gone testing on Mondays before and everything we tried sucked. Like, and you felt like it's unsuccessful and you leave with your head down and you know the owner might be like well that didn't work that was a waste of money but then you realize out of that once you get home and really look at the data it still taught you something and a lot of times it points you even doing it and not working points you in the right direction that will work yeah and that that's the uh again you, you talk about you know learning from failures and whatnot how important that is to kind of figure out like you, you can I, i've seen this before with like, you know, a turbo car tune up is like, well, that didn't work. However, I've learned how to make something else work better. And you, then you just kind of work off of that going forward. Yep. I, you know, and you could, you could ask five crew chiefs the questions you're asking me and probably get five different answers. Yeah. You know, there's like, I like to three, get three of the guys and there's more of them out there than that, that I mentioned are way more brilliant than I am way more smart than I am. I'm more of a garage mechanic type guy where, all right, this is what we're going to try. If that don't work, then we're going to go out 180 degrees the opposite direction. And just even though we try stuff that seems like it's not super simple, we still take a simple approach on, all right, we're not going to stick to this too long. If it don't work, we're going to go 180 degrees the other way. Take, you know, you don't want to keep, again, I'm a big proponent of not doing the same thing every time if it don't work. No. Don't go up there and be like, well, maybe it'll work this time. I've I've been in those situations before, and it it's not going to go anywhere. It, you you, you got to keep working at it. Now, I'm more of a dreamer than I am engineer. I'm more of an idea guy. <laughs> you're, you're the idea guy that passes it off to the engineer. You're like, all right, I got this really cool idea, but I need someone to help me make this work in the real world i have done that in the past yep uh we've there's been times where uh glenn huzzer and i will will engineer it ourselves to a point and then we may need a little bit of help here and there and then we find somebody to you know machine it and maybe do a little final engineering real world engineering but we've already got most of it engineered out sometimes engineering isn't just engineering the part it's also okay we're going to make this change we're going to test this part but it's almost like playing pool what 10 things are is this going to affect in an adverse way before we even go and waste nitro and clutch discs and, and time running it up and down the track so we what well, we would also always spend a month usually at least before we'd even try anything trying to figure out what ramifications it could possibly cause so that we could have that all figured out before we went and ran it. I think that's huge too. I've seen 
where we've been too rash before uh, making like, oh, shoot, this is what we got to do. And then it don't work because you didn't think of all the five or ten things that it adversely affect affected. So you got to think, you know, several steps ahead when you're doing R&D and testing. Yeah, you want to avoid those always not fun, unintended consequences. You want to try. You know, I mean, if you spend a month and you and, and you get seven of the ten things you can think of figured out, well, think of how much money you just saved not having to learn that at several different test sessions, wasting clutch disc, nitro, tires, people's time. So you try, you try to really do your best to think things through and try to be, you know, five steps ahead at least. Well, Tommy, we're starting to wind things down here a little bit. I always like to ask my guests a fun question of some kind. And, you you know, I've, I, I was on the fence what I was going to ask you. And you, you mentioned you, know, you one of your original goals was to, to be a driver at some point. So we're, we're going to give you the keys to the drag zine time machine. And you can be the driver of any car in, you know, the, the known history of nitro racing, you know, the shy town hustler, you know, the blue max car, whatever, which would be the car that you would jump in and drive? Man, there's so many of them, but you know, being true to how I really felt when I was, I don't know how old I was. I was probably nine or 10 or something, or maybe 12. That white army Don Perdome car. That was my favorite car for a long time young and growing up that would have uh that would have been really cool iconic that that car falls underneath the category of iconic i before i even knew really what drag racing was that for some reason i fixated on that car when i was younger and uh you know watching it on the wide world of sports and and uh but there's so many awesome cars you know the gold miller car that ace drove that oldsmobile was bad to the bone um his revolution cars were bad to the bone. I mean, there's so many cars. Uh, Ormsby's dragster was pretty bad in its in its in its heyday, but I have respect for all those guys. But the number one, I have to be true. Before I even knew Ace and New Snake or any of those guys, that that white army car was something that I always really aspired to want to drive when I was young. That makes sense. Well, now that our time here has rolled to an end, I like to give my guests their opportunity to, uh, you know, pull off the old John Force and thank everybody that they need to thank and sponsors and shout outs to businesses and whatnot. So I'll turn the uh, floor over to you so you can thank you need to thank, tell people where they can, you know, see what you got going on in the uh, the whole deal. Well, first and foremost, I want to thank uh, Dustin Davis, uh, Motorsports, owner of this team that has given me this opportunity. Mike Green, definitely a great friend, but... Uh, got a great work relationship and for him to think of me when there's plenty of other guys available that was so much respect for that guy um and then you know obviously beef jerky unlimited you know we 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 make 18 flavors different flavors of beef jerky we've got five flavors of pork and five flavors of chicken and we're always striving to keep our quality at a high level so if you're hungry for some jerky, look us up at beefjerkyunlimited.com and we will ship it to you anywhere in the country.
And as a connoisseur of beef jerky, being a crew guy on the road a lot, and I will vouch for beef jerky unlimited goodness. Well, we do even have a nitro flavor, and it does have flames coming out of the bull's horns because the bull's horns look like zoomies. So I thought that was pretty cool. Nice. For us, that's what we did in the beginning. But uh, yeah, always, even when I won drag race, we'd have a nitro flavor. Just, just can't get away from it. You know, it's part of who you are. I'll be, I'm going to hopefully be running up at a mile in this year at their, uh, some of their Friday night heads up series. So I'll have to uh, stock up while I'm up that way. Well, who knows if they get the rules right. And I, I might be able to bring my car back up there again. Yeah. I was, I was wondering about that. If you start sniffing around that deal and it looks like that those guys are trying to, uh, to do the right thing. So maybe we'll get to see you, uh, ripping some gears too, right? I'm hoping, I mean, we don't have, we haven't run it in three years. We've done some upgrades, but then we had to stop because obviously during COVID, we lost a lot of money in the business and we're still kind of treading, treading water. Um, so obviously the race car becomes the first thing you cut out of your budget. And, uh, but now with picking up another job, <laughs> maybe we'll have, you know, things can get a little loose here. Maybe we'll have enough money to get this thing back together and I'll, Ian Landy's over at Mid-South Racing Engines, get the motor put back together, and um, it's at Frank Cervelli's house down in Indy. We can maybe get everything back together later in the year. Who knows? Maybe make a couple passes up there at Milan. You never know. That would be awesome to see for sure, and I'm sure we'll uh, catch it on the road this year. It's great to talk to you. It's almost Tommy, and uh, we'll see you soon, man. All right. See you soon. Thanks for having me on.